Thank you, Brother Tim, for focusing on the death of our Lord uh, this morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We will be focusing on the death of our Lord, particularly thinking about how Jesus predicted his death. Jesus predicted his death. He told all about it before it ever happened. In the Gospel of Mark, I encourage you as often as you can to take one of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and just read through it as a, as a total package, as a total book. And as you read through Mark, in Mark chapter 8, there seems to be a turn in Jesus' focus. Okay, he has been proving again and again that He is the Son of God. If you look at Mark chapter 8, we're going to be focusing on verses 27 uh, through 31, 32. But if you look at Mark chapter 8, Peter will confess, you are the Christ, Mark chapter 8 and verse 29. You see that? Mark chapter 8, 29, you are the Christ. Jesus has been proving this by his various miracles and his wonderful teaching for some time. And now he's going to make a little turn in his focus. Notice in verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. Mark 8, 31. Be rejected by the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He told them this very plainly. Okay. There are three distinct times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus predicts his death. Okay. Notice these with me right quick. The first one here is Mark 8 and verse 31. Notice in Mark chapter 9 and verse uh, 30. Mark 9 verse 30. See that in your Bible? It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. Okay, so that's Mark chapter 9. Now look in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And notice verse 32 right there. Mark 10, 32. They were on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them that what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So we're going to focus on the account here in Mark chapter 8. Jesus, Jesus predicts his death. Okay. And we'll have our eyes from verses 27 through uh, 33. Verses 27 to 33, Mark chapter 8. And for our consideration this morning, I want you to consider uh, three particular ideals. I want you to focus on the fact that here in Mark uh, chapter 8, 
verse 31, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Son of Man. And then after that, I want us to focus a, a couple minutes on the idea that he says, he must suffer. He must suffer. And then I want us to notice the word Satan, verse uh, 33, Satan. So those three ideas as we think about the death of our Lord, which is so appropriate here, appropriate here on the first day of the week as we prepare to take the communion here in just a little while. So son of man, suffer, and then Satan, Satan. When we think of son of man, we think of Jesus becoming human and he relates to us in the greatest way. John 1, 14 says that the Lord, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as you look in John 1, you see in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This word, the Lord Jesus, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And he relates to us in the greatest way. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was one who was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Of course, we relate to him. One of the great ways we relate to him is is through the example that he set for us. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 21 and 22, Jesus also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should walk in his steps, who did no sin and neither was guile found in his mouth. And so Jesus being the son of man, being the son of man, he became human and he relates to us in the most perfect way. One of the prophecies concerning Jesus' relation to us is found in the great book of Ruth. And you remember how that as Ruth found a husband, that it needed to be someone in relation to her family. And that someone was Boaz. He was a kinsman redeemer for Ruth. So that is really predicting the fact that Jesus one day would come to this earth as a human, relate to us and become our savior, become our redeemer. So thinking about the son of man here, think about how he relates to us, but also thinking about the son of man, think about how he brings salvation to us, he redeems us. So he relates to us and then he brings redemption to us because he is the son of man. Think in those terms, and look at Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. Where it talks about us who are children, we partake of flesh and blood. We're flesh and blood. And then Jesus also partook of the same, that through death, Hebrews 2, 14, that through death, he might deliver us from the power of Satan. And so when you think about Jesus being the son of man, he relates to us, but he also brings us redemption. He brings us salvation uh, through his death and blood. If you're still in the book of Mark, if you look at Mark chapter 10 and 45, Mark chapter 10, 45, 
Jesus says, even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a wonderful thought that Jesus is the Son of Man. So he's the Son of Man in that he relates to us perfectly. He's the Son of Man in that he brings redemption to us. But he's also the Son of Man in that he has regal authority. Regal authority. Okay. Son of Man is not just about Jesus being human, but it's also about him being very much divine. Divine. In fact, if you're right here in Mark chapter 8, and you begin in verse 27, Jesus will ask, who do men say that I am? Some will say, well, you're, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah or, or one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter will say, Lord, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. So Jesus being the son of man, he's not just a prophet. He's not just an ordinary man but rather he is the one. He is, he's the son. He's, he's from God. He is from heaven. He's the bread from heaven. He's the water of life. He is the one, you see. I recall, and you do too, the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration and how the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the ones who appeared there, Moses and Elijah, and God spoke from heaven and said, here, this one, this here is my beloved son. Okay. Hear ye him. Okay. He's no ordinary person. He's the, son of, he's the son of man. And when Peter said, Lord, you are the Christ, remember that the word Christ means the anointed one. He's the anointed one. And this refers to his regal, kingly authority. Remember in Old Testament times, when there was to be a king, they would anoint him as king. God sent Samuel, 1 Samuel 10 and verse 1, to anoint Saul as king, with oil to anoint Saul as king. Later as Saul fails, God sends Samuel to the household of Jesse. And we read in 1 Samuel 16, 13, that Samuel now is sent to Jesse's house to find David and to anoint David as the next king of Israel. That was all in relation to the fact that Jesus would come one day and he would be declared to be the anointed one. He's the son of man. He is the anointed one. He has regal authority. Okay. Look in your Bibles with me to John chapter 5 for a second. Think about how that Jesus have an authority, one day he will judge the world. In fact, as you turn over to John 5, remember in John 5, 28, Jesus said, marvel not at this, the hour is coming, when all that are in the tomb shall hear my voice. They that have done good will have a resurrection of uh, commendation. And then those who have done evil resurrection of condemnation. But stop right there in John 5 and notice verse 27 leading up to that. 
Notice Jesus says, He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Please note that in John 5, 27. The Father has given the Son all authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the King, but no ordinary King. And no king like the world had ever seen before, this king come to suffer and to die for us. Now, a little side note here, if you want to do further study, it's very interesting that in Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, there's a prophecy about this son of man okay, who would come and he would come to the ancient of days, that's the father, to receive a kingdom, to receive dominion. Okay. And that's precisely what we see happen, happening in the great story of Jesus. He came to this earth, he lived, left a great example, he suffered, he died for us, resurrected on the third day, ascended back up on high, and now he is set down at the right hand of God uh, and he is, he is there at the throne now. He's the head of the church. He's the son of man. So I wanted us to first consider Jesus the son of man. No ordinary king, but oh, the king of kings, because he come to suffer and die for us. Secondly, this morning, we consider Jesus predicting his own death. Secondly, let's think about the fact that he says the Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer. He doesn't say the Son of Man should suffer. He said the Son of Man must suffer. Must suffer. I believe that uh, Christopher was teaching here in the auditorium this morning uh, the idea of suffering. You know, we struggle with suffering. But one of the good ideals about suffering is that without suffering, there would need be no plan of salvation for us. There would be no hope for us. Because in God's ways, in God's wisdom, the, His Son came and He had to suffer for us. We might glance over to Hebrews 5, verse 8. Hebrews 5, verse 8. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. You see, without suffering, without the presence of suffering, then there would be no Redemption, there'd be no salvation, be no hope for us. Okay. And that doesn't necessarily, it certainly doesn't take suffering away, but you also see there that when we look a little deeper, we see that there is benefit in suffering. He must suffer. As we think about suffering in life, we understand that suffering is the byproduct 
of the choices we make. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's choices. Oftentimes we suffer because of our own choices. For example, in 1 Peter 4.15, Peter refers to this. 1 Peter 4 and verse 15. He says, let no man suffer as, a, um, as an evildoer. Let no man suffer as a busybody, a meddler in other men's uh, matters. Okay. Let no man suffer as a thief or an evildoer or a meddler in other men's matters. But if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him, let him glorify God in this name. See, There's a, there is the presence of suffering in this life because of the choices we make. Sometimes we suffer because of bad choices. Sometimes we're going to suffer because we are Christian. But now relate this, if you will, to Jesus and the choice that he made. He chose to suffer. He didn't deserve to suffer. We often deserve our suffering. We do deserve our suffering. We're sinners. But Jesus had no sin. And yet, in his choice, he chose to suffer. We mentioned Wednesday night in our study of angels from Matthew 26, 15, 52 and 53. As Jesus was being arrested, Matthew 26, 52 and 53, he told the crowd, he told his disciples, he told Peter. He said, Peter, do you not know right now I could call legions of angels to put a stop to all of this, but he did not. You see, he was letting them know, I am choosing to suffer for you. And there was no surprise to this. He knew exactly what he was getting into. And as you take the Lord's Supper, as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, it would be good to remember that Jesus knew exactly what was ahead of him. Going back to Mark chapter 10, if you will, look over again. Same verse we read a moment ago. Mark chapter 10 and 33. Jesus saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He knew exactly who was going to be delivering him to death. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Notice verse 34. Notice what? What they're going to do to him. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And after three days, he will arise. Jesus knew the suffering that was headed his way. And he did not flinch. He did not stop. He had all the power in the world to put a stop to it, but he would not do it. And that's because he loves you. Oh, so very, very much. The Son of Man and suffering. And then finally this morning, let's look at Satan. Let's look at Satan. And this involves Peter, as you can see in your text in Mark chapter 8, 27 through 33. This involves Peter. 
Now, for Jesus to suffer, to suffer, this is a voluntary act. It's a voluntary act. You know, one time Jesus said in John 10, 17 and 18, no man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. When Jesus died, he gave up his own spirit. They were not taking his life from him. He was giving it up. This is what so bothered Peter. This is why Peter came undone here. See, it's one thing to say, for, for, it's one thing for Jesus to have come to earth and said, well, I'm going to fight for you and probably I'm going to end up dying in this fight. Okay. That would have been okay with Peter. But that's not what Jesus was saying. He said, I have come to die. I have come to die. And Peter, from his mother's lap, had been taught all along that someone was coming, the Messiah, to set things right. But in their minds, they were thinking of a more physical battle, a more this world oriented situation and battle. And so when Peter says, you have come to die and you intend to die. That just, that just um, disturbed him deeply. And so he took Jesus aside and rebuked him. And rebuked him. If you want to know how strongly Peter felt about this, right here in Mark chapter 9, looking down in verse 25. Jesus will cast out a demon. This word rebuke is used to see what Jesus did to demons. It says in verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. This is the strongest type of language this is a very strong word, rebuke. This is what Peter did. He took the Lord aside and with the strongest word he could come with on, on, on this, in the circumstance, he said, Lord, this is not to be to you. You must stop talking like this. But then Jesus turned around and what did he do with Peter? He rebuked him. And notice it closely here in Mark chapter 8. He rebukes him. In verse 33. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Think about this for a second as we think about Satan here. Peter had just made the greatest confession in the world. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then he is now at odds with the Lord. Oh, how Satan loves to work this way. As Satan sees us do a good thing, he is getting ready to try to take us down with a bad thing right after we do the good thing. 
That's exactly the way he works. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He says that because this is when Satan works his hardest. When Satan sees us gain some faith, even make a good confession, do something good, he's in the background sneaking up behind us. He's ready to, to sweep in and cause us to do something that's not good. And this is exactly what happens to Peter. And the Lord rebukes Peter. You see, in Peter's mind, the Lord should be coming and living. Jesus kept saying to Peter, I'm come, I have come to die. In Peter's mind, the Lord should be coming and he should be, he should be, he should be taking control. And Jesus was coming and just, and just relinquishing control. In Peter's mind, Jesus should be coming to rule and to control and to establish, and Jesus was coming to serve and to give and to sacrifice himself. And this just made Peter come undone. The Lord said to Peter, you're minding the things of Satan. You're minding the things of men and not the things of God. And that is the challenge before us this morning. What are we minding? What is our mindset? What are our habits? How, what, are, what is our approach to life? It must be the approach of Jesus, of relinquishing control, of letting go of our thoughts and desires, of not trying to rule and to control, but rather to sacrifice and to serve. And this is the path of our Lord. So this morning, Jesus predicts his death. And our focus has been the Son of Man, the suffering, and the work of Satan. Peter will eventually understand this. It took a while. But what about us? Where are we at? And we invite you to come home to our Lord this very morning. Where are you? Where am I? The question is before us. Jesus asked a question to begin this, this conversation we've been looking at this morning. He said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say the Lord is? Are you ready to make the good confession, be baptized for remission of sins? Are you ready to come home to him, to serve him with an open heart and fully uh, before him? Will you come right now as we stand together? and as we sing.